I have entitled this message, Our Miracle Working Savior. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. I had down here, we were looking at John 9, 6 through 12. We'll just see how far we get. I have just fallen in love with this chapter. The whole account of the healing of the blind man here is it's becoming more and more meaningful to me. Will you consider in the Gospel of John how carefully he chose the miracles? There's seven miracles here in his Gospel. Near the beginning, you have the changing of the water into wine, which just shows Jesus in the middle of a social situation and very concerned about everybody being happy and having a wonderful time there. You have the healing of the nobleman's son. You have the curing of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda who had been in that paralyzed condition for so long. You have the feeding of the 5,000. You have the walking on the water. You have the restoring of the sight to this man here who had been born blind. And then, as we will see, the raising of Lazarus. Only seven. But they're all very important and well surrounded with instruction. And they all have one main end in the mind of the Apostle John, and that is this. He says it in chapter 20, if you look at verse 31, just look at chapter 20, verse 31. He tells us why he picked the things that he did to include in his gospel, which is very different from the other three. The other three are very similar. His is very different. He said, the reason these things were written is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you may have life in His name. I love that. Because He says, I've put these things here to lead you to the point of seeing that Christ is the Son of God and that you would believe in Him as the Son of God. And further, it's almost the same as what He says in the opening of His epistle, further, that you might have life in Him that you would believe in Him and go on to have that life in Him. A life lived in fellowship with God. A life lived charged by the power of God. A life permeated with the love of God, and that can only come from walking with Him. So that's why he chose these particular things that he includes in his gospel. Now back to chapter 9. In chapter 9, Jesus having basically told the religious leaders that he was God before Abraham was ever existing. I am already existing. I am, he told them. I am effectively Jehovah God of the burning bush with Moses. And at that point, they'd had enough. They did not believe in him because they would not. They took up stones to cast at him. He passed through their midst and passing by out the gate, down the steps of the temple, which at that point he would have been facing down the hill where the pool of Siloam is. There is a blind man that he sees who is blind from birth. The disciples questioned him about it. He answered them back. And then in verse 6, when he finished answering the disciples, it says that he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. We have already looked at the whole aspect of pain here and the Savior who meets suffering. We've looked at the whole idea of the Savior who must work and how that applies to our lives. 
and that that is to be a dominating thought in our minds, I must work the works of Him who sent me. I pray to God I'll think that all day, every day of my whole life, because that will draw me into fellowship with Him, that will bring all the resources, and it will follow through with His will, His kingdom coming and His will being done in my life. So now we come to the Savior who works miracles. Now here's this blind man. He's sitting there. He's a beggar. What he does with his life is he comes there and sits there. That's what he does. By this point in his life, he probably could find his way all around Jerusalem, probably by himself. I mean, he never could see. So he grew up and learned to navigate by sight, no. By sound, yes. By smells, yes. By certain activities, yes. So by his hearing, which would have been keenly developed, and by his sense of smell, and by all the different sounds that occur at the same time every day pretty much, you could probably say that he could navigate his way around the town fairly well. So every day he'd come and hang out in this place. There's not a lot going for him here as we see Jesus find him in this condition. Later on, with very little that he knows about Jesus, after his first touch from the Master's hand, he just hangs on to every single thought that he knows about him tenaciously. But right now, he is only, in the beginning, a blind beggar. That's it. And he's condemned to this condition. He is facing a life of hopeless suffering and deprivation. He must beg even to live. The whole picture is one of hopelessness. To look at him sitting there is to realize, here's Jesus passing by, is to realize he's sitting over here, maybe holding out a cup, crying alms or something, and you realize that he could not see Jesus. He's sitting there and he cannot see Jesus. He's blind from birth. Jesus could see him, but he could not see Jesus. And no doubt, even as Jesus walked over to him with the intention of healing him, and even looked down at him, he couldn't see him. He probably at that point began to sense that someone was there, but he didn't know who. And he didn't know what the presence of that particular someone meant in his life. Literally, he had no idea of what it really meant as it would unfold. He could not see Jesus. Another thing about this man is, remember, he's been born blind. So he probably didn't greatly value sight. And that isn't to say that he didn't want to see. That is to say that he never had. You and I, we can see. But if sudden tragedy was to strike one of us and we were to lose our sight, then the loss would be so great and the sense of value concerning sight would be so great having had it. Having never had it, it would be very hard for him to put the right full value upon it. He knew something was missing, of course, but by now in his life he settled in, and that's just the way it is. So he probably didn't value sight that greatly at this point. There is nothing in the text to tell us that he even prayed for sight. We don't have Jesus passing by and he hears suddenly... Master, give me sight. He's just sitting over there begging. He's a beggar. That's what he does. He begs for money. He's not begging for sight because his condition is hopeless. A beggar will beg for what he thinks he can get by begging. A man born blind is not going to be begging for sight. 
especially in that society, because he knows that that cannot ever happen. So he certainly did not expect the miracle that was about to be performed by Jesus Christ. What he did have going for him was that he was in the place where Jesus was. Not by really a plan of his own. I mean, he just sat there every day and begged. That's what he did. But in the sovereign plan of God, and Jesus already explained that, he was there. And so he is there and Jesus is there ministering. Thus, he is in, within the reach of Jesus to touch him. He's in the place where Jesus is ministering. And the final couple of thoughts. When Jesus did touch him, he was immediately made different by the touch of the master's hand. Look at verse 6. Let's read down here to verse 9. It says, When he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made the clay with saliva, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those previously who had previously seen that he was blind said, Is this not the one who sat and begged. Some said, yeah, that's him. Others said, you know, he's a lot like him. He said, come on, it's me. You all know me. I've been here. I've been your neighbor my whole life. But what I like about this is that some said, yeah, that's him. Others said, well, you know, he's like him. I like that. Because he's like him, but there's something really different about him than the guy we've known always. He's only just been touched by Jesus moments before. See, when Jesus really comes to your life and He really touches you, there is a difference. That's why for there to be a life with no difference at all that claims Christ is ludicrous. This man is just momentarily before touched by Christ. They're all looking at Him. They've known Him their whole life. And they said, well, He's like Him. But He's different than the guy we've known. That's the beauty of the Christian life. That's the beauty of salvation. When God comes and touches you, you're different from that moment. And as He continues to touch and work in your life, you continue to become more and more different. He was made different by the touch of the Master's hand. And then just look at all of this and then to stand back and think about it, put it all together and to realize why John wrote it. He wrote it that you would believe Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you would find that life in Him. This man is a picture of every lost, blind sinner needing Christ. Here he is. He cannot see him. You, in your depravity, born in sin, born in darkness, you cannot see God. Man, Romans tells us, man is without God in his thoughts, in his natural condition. In your natural condition, you are blind to the things of God and you don't value the sight that would come from knowing the Lord. And you don't even pray for it because you don't even know what to pray for. And until Jesus comes along, you're hopeless in that state. You become accustomed to it. You live in that state. But what is so tremendous is that when God begins to set about to save an individual, He makes sure that you are where He's ministering. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord personally, that's because God has arranged it to be so. You are in your own natural condition blind spiritually. The Bible calls it dead in sins. And among other things, one thing a dead man cannot do is see. Because he's dead. 
You happen to have been arranged by God to be here. You're in the place where Jesus is ministering. That's because he wants to touch you. This man did not reach out to Jesus. Jesus found him, went to him, and gave him a miracle. He was not seeking, and by the time it was all done, gave him a salvation. He was not even seeking because he didn't know he needed it. What a beautiful picture of salvation by the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It is a picture of a person bankrupt spiritually, a beggar in a corner with one hand of shame over the face and the other hand reaching out just begging. And that's us before we were saved. That's you if you don't know Christ. And He'll save you tonight if you'll ask Him to. He'll open your eyes. And so the blind man... You know why I think John put this in here? To show everything I've said so far, but also to show that God can work and Jesus will work in even the most desperate cases. I love to look at this blind man, blind from birth, hopeless, and then to look around at the people in my life, the hopeless cases, the ones that you typically almost hesitate to pray for, for salvation. You look at them and you think, oh, I don't know. I'll focus on these other people in my life. They seem like God could reach them easier. But then there's this hard case, the obnoxious case, the typical sinner who's just a jerk, you know, that kind of a person. Everybody already hates them. That only adds to the reasons you don't want to pray for them. You hate them too. But you look at them in your life. You see this man. He is hopeless. He's absolutely, utterly hopeless. That's the one Jesus wants to stop for and touch and change his whole life. By the end of the day, that man had a brand new life and he was never the same again. And he never sat on that step and begged again. And he never sat in that shame again. And everything that he looked around at in his whole world, whole new color and a whole new meaning. And that's exactly what salvation does for you. We must pray for those that seem the most hopeless. Those are the ones God delights to save. I wonder how many Christians were praying for Paul the Apostle. That's an honest question. When he was Saul and he was persecuting them, he was the worst man around. He was the most hated man in the whole Christian community. Some of them probably prayed God would kill him or something. Just get him out of our world, God. But I bet you there were some that were really earnestly praying for him. And probably, you know, when Stephen... When they stoned him to death and Paul was holding the coats of everybody so they could throw better. So he's holding the coats and as he watched Stephen die, he was standing there and Stephen said, Lord, lay not this into their charge. Effectively, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he died. I wonder if he turned and looked right up into the face of the Apostle Paul, Saul, the killer at that point, and whispered another prayer. And you're coming next. Something like that, you know. And I'm praying for you. I'm dying, but I'm praying for you. And he's going to touch you with this same love. Because it's often been said that Saul, who became Paul, owed his conversion to the prayers of Stephen. Pray for the hopeless cases. That's why so many of us are here. You realize that, don't you? We were the hated ones. We were the ones people didn't want to pray for, but did. And here we are. And then the means of the miracle. Think of it. Spit and dirt. That is so odd to me. But isn't it odd that Jesus would become flesh, that God would come to this earth, that He would leave the expanse of heavenly glory, leave His throne of transcendent majesty and come down and take upon a body and walk upon this clod of dirt. That to me is so amazing. And so here He is. 
and he spits and he puts some dirt in his hand. One of the things you'll see is that everywhere you go in Israel, there's rocks everywhere. Everywhere. So you understand why whenever they want to kill someone, they picked up stones. They're everywhere. I mean, it's just convenient. But the other thing that you realize is that when Jesus took the dirt and made clay in his hand, it would have been very gravelly. So like uh, real gravelly sand. So he spits and he puts it in his hands and he rubs it together. And then he rubs it into the man's eyes. The Bible says here, the New King James says anointed. That's a really delicate phrase. It's almost churchy, isn't it? The NIV says, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. So you see the picture? Here is this gravelly mud. And he probably said, Peter, get on the right side. John, get on the left. That's going to hurt him. And then he starts pushing it into the man's eyes. And at that point, how many here have ever got a piece of dirt in their eyes? You know the old dirty way of fighting, don't you? You've seen it in cowboy movies. The guy who is losing, he gets all slugged around. He falls to the ground. He knows he cannot beat this guy up. So what does he do? Wearing a black hat, black suit, and he's evil. He picks up a handful of sand, and he comes around like he's going to swing at the guy, and he throws dirt in his face. And the guy runs oh, like this, and then he beats him up. It's totally unfair. But that's because... But the other thing is because sand in your eyes. It is so painful. One little grain of it. Imagine Jesus is grinding this into the man's eyes. In the movie, Jesus of Nazareth, they show the man in that scene, and he starts yelling, Stop that! You're hurting me! You ever seen that scene? Don't touch me! I never thought about it that way until I saw that movie, and I thought, wow, what would I do if some guy, I'm blind, suddenly some guy says, grab him, you know, and starts grinding into my eyes. I'm blind already, you'll make me worse. <laughs> the means of the miracle, it's very different. But you realize it was simply chosen by God. And if you compare it with other miracles in the Bible, it's, you realize, for example, when God wanted to heal Naaman the Syrian, he had the prophet tell him, go down to the Jordan River and wash seven times. Why? That just happened to be the filthiest river. There were lots of other really cool, clean rivers. Why the Jordan? Because it was muddy and it was humbling. God wanted to test this man's heart. When the children of Israel had the plague of the poisonous serpents come and they were biting them and they were all dying, God told Moses, make a serpent on a pole, a brazen serpent, brass serpent, hold it up and tell them if they'll look to that, sort of with a repentive look, then they'll be healed. Now you realize, of course, there was no power whatsoever in that thing he was holding up. None to heal them. But in looking, they were healed. But how odd to put a snake on a stick and hold it up. But that's simply what God chose to do. And you can go on and on like that in the Bible. The point is God chose this simple thing simply because he chose it. And chose then to work through that. There was no power in the clay to heal, but he chose to work through that. And I bring that up because I look at water baptism and the Lord's Supper, and you have water on the one hand, on the other hand at the Lord's Supper, at communion, you have these very simple elements, the juice and the bread. And Jesus said to do that. So I think sometimes we look at how simple it is 
a little cup of juice and a little wafer. And we almost look at it like, so everybody's going to gather together, sing a few songs, have a sip of juice and a wafer. What could that do for my life? And I think you can look at that and say, so what? Why should I miss my favorite show on TV to have a sip of juice and a stale cracker? What you have to realize is that Jesus simply chose that. And he simply asked us to do it often in remembrance of him. And the point is this, just like with the mud and the spit, this is what he has chosen to work through. I think if we would come to the Lord's table with the attitude that he has chosen to work through this in my life, thus I do what he says as I draw near to him, then we would find the blessing he seeks to communicate to us. Water baptism, there's no magic in the water, but he's chosen to work that way, and it becomes a tremendous milestone in the Christian life. So he simply chose to use this means, and we need to pay close attention to that, and to realize there's no magic in that. You can make an idol out of it or whatever, but to just let him work is a tremendous thing. Another thing concerning this means of the healing is that I think it was to show that he's not bound by any method of working particularly because we're so prone to put God in a box. We're so prone to see God work and assume, well, that's the way he works. I thank God for the people along the way in my Christian life who have specifically said to me, be careful, don't put God in a box in your Christian life. And I have even almost every time thought, look, it's Danny you're talking to. I am the last person to put God in a box. I know what you're saying. Let God be big and powerful. Well, you're talking to somebody that understands that. But in all reality, I needed to hear it because I already had him in the box already. It was boxed up and everything was squared away and I understood it all. Then a problem comes up. Lord, you don't tend to work this way. I can handle this one. If I get in a jam, I'll call out to you later on this afternoon. But I think I can handle this one. Or we come to God if we think we have Him figured out. Or we start demanding or we start petitioning according to the way we have it wired. Then we start prescribing to God how to do it. Now, Lord, here's the situation. You and I have been through this many times. I know that generally what you do is you'll respond like this. Now, the way I see it, Lord, is given your response, of course, you're a power God. We'll factor that in too. But you see, I've got this plan here, Lord. And the way I see it, with your, with your power and your response and my plan, oh, Lord, bless this plan now in Jesus' name. Then mad if he doesn't do it. We're back in a short time. Hey! You said if I seek first the kingdom, I'm coming in your... Hey, bless this plan, Lord. I want her, I want that house, and I want that car and that boat with that engine now. <laughs> it can almost become dangerous when we get real experience with the work of God in our life because we think we have him figured out. Then we start prescribing to God how to do the job, how to solve the problem, and then mad when he doesn't. Someone has observed so well that God loves to effect His greatest works by means tending under ordinary circumstances to produce the very opposite of what is to be done. In other words, you take sand. It's so unstable, but God chose to wall in the entire ocean with it. God has chosen to clean out the air with storms. God has chosen to work in His world and His kingdom of grace in so many wonderful ways. Out in the desert, He brings water, not from the soft earth, but from a hard rock. 
you see that God in so many ways as I said with the brass serpent chose to heal the people that way you see him overthrow the walls of Jericho as we studied recently not with battering rams or anything like that but with the blowing of ram's horns you see him all the way along he has Samson out there and he anoints Samson with his heavenly power and then he's facing this huge army and he wants Samson to kill about a thousand men And so Samson picks up the jawbone of a donkey and starts whacking away. These guys have these big swords. They've got shields and armor. And here's this wild Israelite with long hair because he was a Nazarite. So he never cut his hair. A Nazarite with a big bushy beard, long hair, and a wild look in his eye because he's so anointed by the Spirit of God. And he's swinging a jawbone of a donkey around. Now that could be scary enough as it is. But when he started hitting you with that thing, man, one guy after the next was dead. He killed a thousand people when it was all done. And a jawbone of a donkey is not designed for that. (laughs) The prophets are all nervous and there's death in the pot. God works. The people come to the water. The water is poisonous in in the desert. They put salt in the water and you find all these different things. David kills a giant with a sling and... And it's all God using things that normally would maybe do the exact opposite to prove that He is not bound to any method whatsoever of working, of blessing, of healing, of solving a problem. And may God help us to see that as Jesus is grinding the sandy, spitty mud into this man's eye. And when he comes back, he can see and his whole life has changed. Another thing I see about this particular means, simply chosen by God to show us he's not bound, but also this, as I said, had to be painful to the man. And unless you haven't made the connection, I'll make it for you. Some of the greatest things that God is going to do in our life are going to take us through the most painful process. This was probably the most painful thing that man had ever gone through. And yet, nothing he ever went through changed his life more. You might be there right now today. It's become so painful, you're even wondering, maybe, if the God of the Bible is real. Because if he was, how could he allow you to go through this? And yet, at the same time, as this man was in pain, but he was under the touch of the master's hand if you can see it that way when you come through this your whole life may be different I can easily and honestly say to you that the most painful things that I have ever gone through in the Christian life have done me the most good they've done me the most good Spurgeon said that he owed every bit of depth and intimacy that he had with God to the pain that God allowed to come his way in his life to the painful times he had taken him through. And he said that he found there was no greater commentator on the Bible than pain. I have found that to be true myself. When I go to the Bible and I'm in the hardest, most painful times of my life, the Bible is most alive. And often with everything is smooth, it's not a trial in sight, and I'm just gliding along, I go to the Bible and I log in a little time, you know, check through a few chapters and just feel even more spiritual than I did before I went, and really not grabbing at it, really not thinking about it. So I say to you, this was painful to the blind man, but the painful process changed his whole life. Trust God when you're in that place. Trust Jesus. The blind man, the means of the miracle. Then Jesus, the miracle-working Savior here, he's interestingly described by this man. If you look at John 9, 10, There he is. Some said he's like him. They're wondering. He said, I am he. Therefore they said, then, how were your eyes opened? 
He answered and he said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go wash. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed. And I received my sight. They said, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Here he is. He's been blind from birth. A man called Jesus, he says. Jesus Christ is here an amazing man. This man that he knew so little about had instantly become the most important person in existence to him. The Bible in Isaiah 9.6 says his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, Jesus said, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. He is all of that, but he is also a man. And you know, one of the greatest things about the Gospels is you can study Jesus as a man. And that's not a bad place to begin. Because what happens is as you begin to study the man, Jesus, the man called Jesus, did this. As you begin to study the man, you begin to find out there is no man like this ever. And then you find out in the end why. Because he's God. J.B. Phillips, the author of the modern paraphrase some of you may have of the Bible, He had a good grasp on this. He said, he wrote these words. He said, I had deep respect, indeed a great reverence, for the conventional Jesus Christ whom the church worshipped. But I was not at all prepared for the unconventional man revealed in those terse gospels. No one could possibly have invented such a person. This was no puppet hero built out of the imagination of adoring admirers. This man, Jesus, so briefly described, rang true, sometimes alarmingly true. I began to see why the religious establishment of those days wanted to get rid of him at all costs. He was sudden death to pride and pomposity and pretense. This man could be moved with compassion and could be very gentle. But I could find no trace of this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, He was quite terrifyingly tough, not in a bulldog, drumming, James Bond sort of way, but by the sheer strength of a unified and utterly dedicated personality. He once, at least, walked unscathed through a murderous crowd. I have known a few, very, very few men who could do that. But then I find that his sheer strength was still in him after hours of unspeakable agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those who were sent to arrest him fell back to the ground. Jesus was a man of such stature and quality that he could remain in command of a situation even when the odds were heavily against him. End quote. What a tremendous thought to look at the man, Jesus Christ, and to realize... Nobody could have ever invented this. This man is God. And so the man, Jesus, he said, put clay in my eyes and told me to wash and now I can see. You know what is interesting also is that as this man became so immediately the most important person in existence, I like where he says, and I know you've read over it for years and maybe some of you are wondering if we're going to even mention it. But where he says, 
Go wash in the pool of Siloam, verse 7, which is translated sent. You ever wondered what that's all about? I have wondered and wondered about that. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And I thought, oh, well, translated sent. In other words, he was sending him. But that's like having an interpreter interpret when the guy talking to you is already speaking your language. Hello, my name is Sam. He said, hello, his name is Sam. But that's kind of how I thought it through and left it. Really what it is, because I researched this, is the Siloam. Siloam, that pool, which is translated sent. The name of the pool is the sent one. The sent one. If you go to Israel, you can travel all around. There's not water everywhere. A lot of it's just desert. You travel up the road to Jerusalem, there's nothing where the Bedouins live. Minutes out of Jerusalem, going down toward Jericho, there aren't even trees. There's no water. So to have a, a pool right there on the top of the mountain, it's like sent from God. It's the sent one. And in the time of Hezekiah, they dug the tunnel from underneath the city to that pool and then expanded the wall and all of that so that it was inside the city. They have an endless supply of water. That pool is the sent one. This becomes very intriguing, especially when you look on the other end of the miracle and who's waiting is described in the Pharisees to greet the man who's been healed. So Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I want you now to go wash in the pool of the sent one. Every religious leader knew about that pool, the sent one. I mean, it was the water supply for Jerusalem. So he goes, and he's on the way. Wash in the pool of the sent one. Wash, wash, and, and you'll see. Maybe he's the sent one. Maybe he's the Messiah. Then he goes and he's washing. Sent one, sent one, sent one, sent one. And all of a sudden he can see. And he's thinking, he is the Messiah. He is God. He is the sent one. Then... He encounters his neighbors, and then they take him to the religious leaders, and then he answers to them how it all happened, and they get madder and madder and madder and madder, and finally they cast him out. They throw him out of the synagogue. What it's all done. He sent you where? To the pool of the sent one. In other words, Look, all I know is this. I was blind. A man came along and said, Go wash in the pool of the sent one. I think he's the sent one. So the sent one sent me to the sent one. And now I see. You like it? Who is he? Where is he? I don't know, but I can see. You like it? You want to be his disciples too? No! No, no, no! And then they threw him out. Chuck Smith mentioned he felt Jesus had used the mud and spit just to get to the scribes and Pharisees. Just to get to them. So that only a minute ago they're trying to kill him for saying he's God. He sees a blind man sitting there on the way out of the gate. He's thinking, I'm going to get these guys. I'm going to heal this guy and send him back to him. They have the aggravation they couldn't kill me. Now they're going to have further aggravation that I am who I say I am by sending a man born blind to them seeing. And when they say, how is it that you can see? He'll say, I don't know, a guy spit and then he rubbed it in dirt and rubbed it in my eyes and sent me to the pool of the sent one. Now I've been sent to you, it seems like. Buy the sent one. No! It is almost so comical as to see Jesus saying then to the disciples, let's get out of here. It's enough for one day. Besides, they're going to be madder now than they were before when they get a hold of this blind guy who can see with his muddy face. 
I think that when you look at it all, it's just one more thing to show the length that Jesus went to to reach these people. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. We hate these guys after reading the Gospels a little while. He loved them. To the end, he wanted to save them. Dying, he said, Father, forgive them. And I think it was just one more thing to find any one of them who would be willing to come out from among them and be willing to be cast out, like they cast out the blind man. His parents were afraid because they'd been threatened. You claim Christ and you'll be thrown out of the synagogue, you'll be banned. I think he wanted to find anyone among them who would be willing to step out and become his disciple and follow him. And so I think that's a lot of the reason he did it the way that he did. We know that among them was a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. And we know that he was still not public and it wasn't until Jesus died and time was running short and they needed to get his body off the cross that suddenly, after the death of Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea got together and, and Nicodemus went public with his testimony of belief in Jesus Christ. I have to believe that at that point in time he was looking back and he added it all up and then added together, Father forgive them, and all that he had seen. And at that point it was just irresistible. He had seen so much there was no way to, to not believe. How about you? You're in a place where Jesus is ministering and maybe haven't been looking for him, maybe never valued what it could be to know him or see him. To understand Him, He loves you. He's reaching to touch you. Open your heart to Him. Let Him open your eyes and give you the sight to see why you're alive, why you live on this earth. What it takes is to be honest with Him, to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I admit I am a sinner. I believe you died for me and rose again. Come and fill my heart. Live inside of me. Lead me and guide me. And I'll follow you forever. A child could pray that prayer. So can an adult. It's a matter of if you want to and if you will. As we pray now, open your heart to God and articulate your need to Him. And know that there is no case so desperate He doesn't have the solution. Lord, we thank You tonight for the account of this hopeless blind man. And to see, Lord, all that You did in reaching Him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are able to come to us in our utter darkness and to reveal yourself to us and to bring the greatest healing of all, and that is to our sinful, lost condition. Lord, for any here that don't know you, reveal yourself to them even now in such a way that they will no longer be able to resist, but with open arms and an open heart, invite you to become the Lord of their life. We thank you, Jesus, for your great plan. We thank you even for the painful times in life when you're doing the best work in us. And for those that have come in tonight so deeply burdened down with that reality, may they go out, Lord, in a new sense of peace and rest in you, that you are the great physician and the great Savior, and that you have come to rescue them and to change them through this time. And Lord Jesus, we'll give you all the glory as you continue to work your work in our lives. For we ask these things in your name. Amen.